Welcome to the Evolving Executive Podcast, the podcast for executives and other leaders who want real talk about what it takes to be a leader and the lessons you learn along the way. I'm your host, Mary, from Evolve Your Performance, and I'm excited to share some amazing conversations I've had so that we can learn together. Before we get started, I've got a gift for you. As an executive and leader, I understand all too well how taking action on what you learn is just as, if not more important than the learning itself. That's why every month I share the most important knowledge nuggets from the interviews, along with my insights on how to take action. If you're interested in leveling up your leadership and receiving the show notes from today's and other episodes, you can sign up at evolvingexecutivepodcast.com. Without further ado, I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest. So today we are talking with Don Gleason. Don is currently the CEO and president of Achieve New Heights, as well as founder and CEO of the Military Transition Roundtable. He has almost four decades of leadership experience in both the military and private sectors. Not only did Don spend over two decades leading teams and projects large and small as an Air Force engineer, he's devoted the last several years to helping military and others navigate career transitions. He uses his diverse leadership experiences to help others understand and lead themselves so they can understand and lead others with better results. I'm really excited to learn more about his leadership journey and philosophy. So welcome, Don. We're so glad you could join us today. Well, I really appreciate it, Mary. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and your audience. You know, it's it's such an honor to be here. And I want to challenge the audience while we're we're thinking about it, right? It's too easy sometimes just to listen to the podcast, but to both think about the questions you're going to ask and how it applies to them. And then the stories I'm going to relate back of how Absolutely. they have their story and, uh, and really think into it. Cause I think that's where the real goal comes from. So I, I appreciate the opportunity to do this. This is going to be exciting. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. And I love that. Let's uh, see how the audience can take your stories and apply it to their own life. That's right. So to kick us off, let me ask, what's the first time you remember thinking that leadership was for you? We want to know that story behind the first light bulb moment when you realized, hey, maybe I have potential to be a great leader and I might even like it. Yeah, you know, um, that when you when we talked about that question, that has really made me think, right? <clears throat> because I had some times during my career, even you know, in college and stuff, where I wasn't leading myself very well. I had a dream one time to be an NFL pro football player, but I wasn't putting forth the effort. I wasn't leading myself. <clears throat> but then again, you know, in the fifth grade, I knew I wanted to be environmental. I say environmental engineer. I didn't know that until I was in high school, but the engineer part. But um, I realized in college that I had to start really leading myself. My parents were, I was the third of three kids. My other two brothers were gone. You know, they they were kind of like at a stage where it's almost empty nester. There's considered empty nesters. I didn't see them that much. So I was almost like living in an apartment by myself. It was kind of interesting. It was the house. It was in my parents' house, but they were gone a lot and uh, and dad was working. So uh, I started leading myself back in college and really focusing in. But it wasn't until I started doing my first supervisory job in the Air Force. Um, it was my second job where I started supervising team members, where I really started learning that piece about leadership. Um, mm-hmm. I need to be focusing on how I'm coming across Right. I had to set the example. I can't hold them accountable for something I'm not holding myself accountable for, whether it's attendance, whether it's 
timely, you know, getting things done, suspenses, whether it's, you know, participating in conversations that we're, that we're trying to have. So being that leader, and I had a great team, really only three people, a tech sergeant, a staff sergeant, and another staff sergeant. And uh, maybe it was two techs and a staff, I can't remember. But anyway, great team. They were, we just got along great. We, we were really doing some neat things. And uh, when I got my regular commission, they took me and my wife out to breakfast. And uh, so it just kind of typify how the team had come together. We were working toward things, but we we really saw it as we were all in this together and just had different mm-hmm. roles. And I think that was the first time. And I think that's where I go back to when I was in fifth grade. I wanted to be clean up America's waters. But that was the first bite of leadership where I really enjoyed being that that leader out front, helping the team, resourcing them. Yeah, absolutely. So was there like one thing that you can put your finger on? Was it that breakfast when you got your commission? Was it something where the boom came down because you weren't doing what you're supposed to in terms of self-leadership? What was that? Do you have a moment there, uh, a story you can share? Here's probably the point. Um, The breakfast was much later in that experience. When we took over the, the office, um, we changed out the officer, we changed out the NCOIC, we changed out pretty much everybody. <clears throat> and they handed over the accounts of materials, gas masks, all kinds of stuff. It was war reserve material, WRM. And we kind of took it at face value. They said that it was all there. They had already inventoried it. So we didn't go inventory it. And uh, guess what? A couple of months in when we started inventorying it, I mean, we were missing mega quantities of stuff. But we had signed for it. So we were responsible. So I think that's where it really hit the road of you have got to be careful. Trust but verify was always the thing I learned in the military. Mm-hmm. I trust that they said they did their interview, but I need to go back and verify and do my own, in, uh, not interview, um, inspection, uh, inventory. I have to do that. And I have to make sure that I hold my people accountable to doing the same thing. I think that was because that was... That was one of those things where you, you saw potentially hundreds of dollars coming out of your pocket. Yeah. And as that was one where it shook me up. Yeah. I, I probably lost some sleep over that. <laughs> yeah. I think we all have moments in our leadership career where we, uh, we've had those kind of sleepless nights. And one of my favorite questions I ask is, you know, what keeps you up at night in terms of leaders? Because there's always something, right? That's, that's Whatever right. the chaos is of the moment. So this kind of idea of um, taking things at face value and and uh, and trusting but verify, how has that, like, what's the, do you see a thread in your um, leadership career about, is that a lesson that's followed you throughout your career? Or was that just kind of a practice that once you learned it, it just became background noise? Um, no, probably more of the first. I was almost going to say both, but when you said that, <laughs> it never went into the background. It became just, uh, it only became in the background that it became part of me. Verify. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so when you would ask somebody, hey, did such and such get done? Right? Because I was responsible. You can delegate the authority, but not the responsibility, I believe. Mm-hmm. So um, if I was, if they told me it was going to be, it was done. I couldn't report upwards unless I really knew I either had a great trust um, that that they would never let me down, or if there was any type of inkling. In fact, in our leadership lab for the Society of American Military Engineers today, we were talking about Stephen Covey's book about speed of trust. Yeah, 
And a bunch of people were talking about how it, he said, Stephen Covey says the bottom line is character, which is big part is integrity. And if there was any lack of trust and 100% integrity, you'd really have to go back and just double check it just to make sure it was done right. Mm-hmm. So I think that stayed with me uh, throughout. And uh, and I always told people, I say, I'm not, not trying to doubt your character, but I'm trying to make sure when I push something forward to the boss that he can trust. He can trust me, not just like I'm trusting you. And we, yeah. we build that trust as we walk through this together. So there'll be a time where I don't need to check on things. Absolutely. So I love the concept of trust, right? So from my perspective, trust in organizations at a broader level, not between a single person, is a really big part of not having a toxic organizational culture. Yes. How else has trust played a role in your leadership journey as you think about the past several decades of experience in terms of uh, positive or negative um, experiences or stories around trust? I'm going to jump way forward. Um, So I came out of the military and joined Booz Allen Hamilton. And about the five-year point with Booz Allen, um, some of the work in San Antonio, we could see it going away. So I jumped on with another team in Booz Allen. We were doing some work with Department of Energy. And we were a subcontractor to a joint venture of big name companies. And right from the very beginning, there was no trust between the big companies and us. And they they had hired us to do the work. It was cost efficiency. They had, um, what was it? uh, It was about $2 billion a year. It was a 10-year contract. They were seeing the the escalation. They, the DOE, was seeing the escalation of the contract. And uh, they needed needed us to bring it down. The joint venture with us as the sub had proposed a $3 billion savings, 15% over 20 years, 10 years, excuse me. And uh, and the big part of the cost is people. So we were looking at X number of positions had to go away. And right from the very beginning, we became the bad guy, mm-hmm. even though we were just working for them. But it was every meeting, it was an opportunity for them to belittle us, downplay us, make fun of us. And, uh, and it, it was, Unfortunately, they thought bringing the leadership of the big companies closer to the people at the plants and using us as that scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And that I think it really showed really more that the people really didn't trust them, but they certainly didn't trust us. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I worked on that project for almost three and a half years and uh, traveling. I was living in San Antonio, traveling to two other locations, you know, every Monday, Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, coming home or most weekends, had apartments up at the locations. And after three years of banging my head on the wall, it was just like, it was funny how one night we were actually at a Christmas party up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And uh, somebody said something to me and it just flipped just like that. I said, I'm done. I'm not taking this anymore, right? And yeah. Because of that lack of trust, that we couldn't sit down with a boss and have a clear conversation um, without without them kind of belittling us and stuff. And yeah. uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff behind that one, but that's where it it continues to. That was back in uh, 2017, so just what five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it continues to stay in the forefront for me. Now, do you think like? Um... I always say, you know, you, bad news 
is better than imagination or no news at all, right? And so I'm I'm wonder I kept wondering as you were talking and telling that story, would it have been the same if you knew up front, hey, we're gonna use you guys as the scapegoat. Um, and we respect you, we we you know, we respect you as a human, but from this perspective, you're gonna be the fall guy, and that's what we're paying you to do. Do you think the relationship interpersonal relationships would be different on the team having had that kind of honest, not good news, but the honest news up front, would it have made a difference, do you think? Great question. Well, I hope, I hope that's one of the, the, the listeners really think into their mind. That's a great question. Um, yes and no. My coaches always say yes and. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's a true one. Yes and no. Um Yes, it would have improved the relationship between us and the prime, the joint venture, mm-hmm. big companies, because we could have felt like we were working together. And then you can do the good guy, the good cop, bad cop right. thing, and you have a role. Um, so, yes, that would have helped. Because every time I walked into the vice president's office of who I was working with, um, I never knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know. Were we going to talk about what the topic was? Were we going to move in the right direction? We just never knew anything about how it was going to come out, um, <clears throat> whether he was going to trust the numbers. I wanted him to dig into the numbers, right? I was still learning some of the pieces on how the, the plant operated. But no, because at some point when you are constantly the scapegoat, you know, when you're when you're close to 15 or 20 people, but there's 4,000 people that are – are not seeing you know that positive mm-hmm. and they they because the culture let's just jump on culture for a second right if if the leadership of the company is outwardly going to downplay us but inwardly in small groups be connect connections the plant the majority of the people are going to mimic what the leaders do mm-hmm. and therefore they're going to find ways to be liberal and downplay us and at some point you just can't take that that's why i say and no yeah. yeah. So you brought up two things that I want to dig into and pull a thread on a little bit. The first one is kind of this idea of ambiguity, right? You said, I just never knew walking into the office whether what it was going to look like, right? And, and today in, in organizations, there's lots of ambiguity, but there's ambiguity that's not controllable on the environment and things like that, that people just have to build their resilience around. But then there's ambiguity created by poor decisions or poor leadership. Um, so I'm wondering if there's any kind of thread there to pull for you with, with ambiguity in terms of your lesson that you learned with how to deal with never knowing what you're walking into and how that's kind of followed you through after that. Yeah, that's, well, that's good questions. You're a good question. <laughs> question maker. <laughs> yeah. um, like I'm okay working in some ambiguity pieces. Because there are things that sometimes you don't know. And if the boss just come, up, comes out front, up front right at the beginning and just says, hey, here's where we are. Here's where I want to get to. I don't know how we're going to progress through this. I'm looking for you to help me develop the strategy, develop the plan to work through this. And, uh, and let's, let's create it together. You got a lot of autonomy. Grab, your, grab people you know, create the solution, come back to me periodically, and let's make sure we're moving in the right direction. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Because we're working it together. When you, in this particular one situation, we were going to do an offsite for four hours, and we were taking that organization, this vice president led, 
<clears throat> and we were talking through the different aspects of it. And he asked me particularly to have about a 45-minute presentation about the cost savings. I said, great, great. So I, so I structured it all up. And as we were going through the afternoon, we were coming down to the last 30, 45 minutes. And I was like, hey, remember, you wanted us to, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that after I summarize. I'm like, yeah. we're ending at 4.30. You're going to summarize about 4.15. So we did. So at 4.25, he said, okay, now I want Don to, to go ahead and give us a summary of cost savings. I'm like, I got five minutes. <laughs> so my 10 slides, I moved down. I only was going to do two slides. On the very first slide, within the first minute, he says, you know, you always have so many slides. I'm like, you told me to talk for 45 minutes. You're giving me five and nobody's paying attention. You know? yeah. So that kind of ambiguity of not knowing going into a meeting, if you were going to get to do the things that he asked you to do, right? mm-hmm. did he did he now change the perspective that he wanted you to focus in on? I can get it if somebody tells me that. He said, Don, I, I know that we asked you to do this, but would you move in this direction instead? Because I think this is where we need to go as a group. I'm all for that. Mm-hmm. I can that kind of ambiguity. Yeah. But when it's really an opportunity to downplay and, and lose that trust, I, I couldn't. I walked out of that and went straight to the airport and I was just like, am I done? <laughs> yeah, no, there's, there are those moments where you know uh, – you're speaking of tr- working with people in their transitions, you know, the self-transition of it's time for me to to move on. Sometimes you have those That's moments, right. but I love that around how clear expectations and communication can kind of counterbalance the ambiguity piece, right? So it's not that things changed last minute. That was the issue. It was that there wasn't a clear expectation of now that things have changed, what do they need from you instead of letting you guess and then dinging you for not guessing right? That's right. I like that. So the the model of the um, managed collaborative ambiguity that you talked about, is that something that you saw and experienced and did in the military that strike me as very military? Like, hey, here's where we're at. Have no idea how to move forward. Let's get together and figure it out. Was that a military thing or where did you learn that? in terms of how to collaboratively solve problems like that. I was going to give you a story about the reconstruction in Baghdad. Reconstruction. There you go. So I'll, I'll touch on that. But then you, you, you had the question of where did it first come in? Um, I think it kind of grew over time. One of my first base, it was my first base and my second base. We were working the environmental program. And it was areas that, were really kind of new. Um, Superfund, everybody's familiar with Superfund. Air Force has a version called Installation Restoration Program that's mm-hmm. looking at where waste had been disposed of previously, not in the right manner, according to the new rules. So it could be leaking landfills, could be all kinds of stuff. Um, my boss didn't necessarily know how to go about finding the information, but he said, here's what we want to do. We want to find where we have disposed of things we want to. We had a groundwater contamination. We want to find where this groundwater contamination is coming from. Here's kind of where we think it could be, but I need you to go find which shops are using this chemical, you know, how they're tracking it, those kind of things. So I had slowly stepped into that over time of being able to operate. And I think when I say I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm an engineer, an environmental engineer, usually we think of engineers like construction, mm-hmm. where everything is pretty well black and white, right? 
<clears throat> yes, you know, here's the load of, for the, say, for the bridge. Here's the load that's in the different members. How do we design that? How do we, what size do we, we make each steel member or concrete member? Um, there's formulas for that, but it's kind of a set process. I always love the environmental piece because it is that ambiguity. <clears throat> you know, when somebody says, you know, how do we create a spill prevention control and countermeasures plan? Where are all the tanks on this base? How are, what are people putting in the tanks? That was a huge thing. I, as a second lieutenant, my boss gave me that and said, we don't have a good inventory of the, the tanks on this base. Can you, can you figure that out? Sure. So we talked a little bit about where some ideas were. And then I, as I talked to people, they gave me other ideas. And, and pretty soon I had a, uh, it was a strategic air command, SPCC, spill prevention control and countermeasures plan that became a benchmark for the command. You know, here I was a second lieutenant, which led me to winning later winning some environmental awards. So I learned how to operate in that. Probably the ultimate was besides the contract I was just talking about. I went to Baghdad in 2004 as the deputy director of programs for the reconstruction. So our job was to work with the ministries, the Iraqi ministries, on the 3,250 projects, <clears throat> scope them out, put them into programming, keep them within the cost, and move them into construction. So we could work through the design and everything, and then work them into construction. And there was no rules for that. Mm -hmm. It was everybody's experience trying to figure this out in a very hot terrorist you know, environment. Yeah, talk about ambiguity. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, a contractor called us up one morning and said, "I, I'm no longer at, I'm no longer in Baghdad. I'm not working this project. We got threatened last night. I'm now in Abu Dhabi. That was the real wow. country." It says we'll we'll be back in hopefully a couple of weeks when things settle down, or I may never come back. Well, how long do we hold and wait for them? Right? How do we go through rewarding that? Do we have to totally rebid it? Do we just go to the next lowest bidder? You know, we were having to figure all that out. Mm -hmm. uh, so that training through my career helped me be ready to think that way. I, I'm going to bring in something I just learned this morning. Um, every October, John Maxwell, I'm an executive director with the John Maxwell team, <clears throat> which just is the highest level of information that, that I get to use from John in my business, his achievement heist that you talked about, uh, leading training and coaching, um, speaking as well. And... <clears throat> He, every October, he does this Live to Lead conference. And last year, he had Patrick Lencioni talking about his new book, The Six Geniuses, Excited mm -hmm. Us. And he said, there's six types of genius types. Two of them were really good at. Two were kind of mediocre. Two were terrible. Um, and one of those was kind of the innovative piece. Um, and I think I'm pretty good at asking that question of, does this make sense? Am I getting all the information? And how do I create a solution? to solve this. So that made me think as I was at the gym this morning listening to that. I, like, I got some of those. Yeah. So, so well, I was going to ask, is that a um, engineer thing? Because I've come across a lot of leaders where saying, I don't know, to, in order to be able to be a collaborative problem solver is not a place that they want to be. Right. So I thought, well, maybe that's an engineering thing. Because engineering problems are outside of the self, right? So maybe it's easier to learn how to say, I have no idea when it's outside. Um, but I just wanted to, you to reflect on that. Like, is, is it just an engineer's ability to say, I don't know? Or was it 
you know, can, do you still have that same vulnerability in other things that um, bring that collaborative problem solving to your leadership style? I think it's, I don't think it's unique to the military. I ran into a number of military leaders, some, some engineers, some not engineers, but military who did not want to hear, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it really came back down to confidence in themselves, um, ego. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of, uh, I can't think of the right word, narcissist, right? Thinking of themselves more. Um, when it comes to that point, and, I, and I've seen those on the, the non-military side. So depending on the personality of the leader and their skills, I think you have to be very careful about what words you use. Um, that's why I love some of these personality tests. I'm a, I'm a DISC consultant with the Maxwell method, being mm-hmm. a junk consultant guy. And that tells me a lot about, based upon their behavior, what their personality is. So being able to now pick this other one this morning about the six geniuses was, it's just, it's mind-blowing. <laughs> last December, through this thing called the Lunch Club, what they do is they arrange for you to have like one or two just meetings with people in the lunch club and you just have a, an hour conversation. <clears throat> well, I'm working with one individual and we're just kind of butting heads. It's like, I, I don't get it. Well, this guy that I get on the connection with, he says, well, that person's a visionary and you sound like you're an integrator. I say, talk to me. He says, yeah, visionaries, they can come up with ideas, but they're not solution people. They can't get mm-hmm. into details. In fact, you'll drive them crazy if you try to drive them to that. To, to get them to think details, but you're an integrator. You're a C. I have a C disc personality, so I love the details. I love processes. <clears throat> I love figuring out processes sometimes, even when they don't exist. He says you're you're really good at the details and creating solutions. The two of you have to learn how to work together. Mm-hmm. You can't make him like you, and he can't make you like him. And you're unique. And I was just like, oh my god, that that's exactly it. <laughs> um, so. By using these tools, I wish we would have gone into high school and college about some of this, not just the reading, writing, arithmetic type stuff, English, but here's how to work with other people. Here's the different types of styles. Here's the assessments, how to work together. I think that would have helped me so much along the journey of figuring people out. And so now what you're doing in the military and non-military, when you're talking about the question you just asked about, um, I don't want to hear you don't know is you're how do I say it <clears throat> trial and error mm-hmm. you may say something and he says I don't ever want to hear you say that well I now know it to self now yeah right? right but you've already just kind of in in his mind or her mind the leader's mind um you've crossed the line and they start losing a little bit of confidence and a little bit of trust so um so I think it's more about the answer you before answer your, to your short question. I think it's more about the personality and ego strength of the leader. Mm-hmm. It's about military, non-military, or engineer, non-engineer. Got it. Yeah. So I'm going to take you back to the second thing that you said and the answer to the two questions before, which was talking about um, leadership modeling the behavior. You were talking about how kind of the collaborative leadership was modeled to you in the military and you've kind of taken it with you. What other things have you seen kind of modeled in terms of good leadership or bad leadership that has really shaped who you are as a leader? 
Oh, you go back to that time when the boss asked me to um, find all the, my first base, find all the underground storage tanks on base. Mm-hmm. I happened to be over in the communication squadron. I happened to, somebody pointed me to the squadron commander, Lieutenant Colonel. So here's the second Lieutenant, first year going into this Lieutenant Colonel's office and asking what he knows about underground storage tanks because comm communications had various generators and equipment, et cetera. And we just kept talking. Somehow we got talking about leadership and he started talking about the golden rule, right? Praise in public, criticize in private. Mm-hmm. And I go back to that conversation so many times. Um, but I've known so many leaders who like, it's like being a bully. I love the way John Maxwell talked about, right? When you're a bully, you're like putting your hand on somebody else's shoulder and trying to push them down so you're higher up. Mm-hmm. And when people use various words to make fun of you or even denigrate you in public, like go back to the DOE contract, but it's like being a bully. They're trying to push you down to make themselves higher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's where it really came from. I was like, that was the important lesson for me of praising public, criticizing private. And I think I, I've really tried to take that across my experience. If I saw something, I would write it down and say, hey, I need to talk to them later. I wouldn't make a, I wouldn't make a point of that unless I had to, right? I, I was on this uh, rapid one, runway repair team and we had been preparing and training and training and we were in the middle of the inspection in Germany, uh, NATO tactical evaluation. Um, so this is a big thing. <clears throat> and we were failing. So in our end of shift briefing, you know, hey guys, this is, we need to pull the rank off. We need to talk about what we didn't do right. We need to figure out what we did good. And let's just, we got another opportunity tomorrow. And we're going to get another chance. So let's, let's win tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was funny. I was kind of really getting on the team and the squadron commander rounds the corner and he ended that meeting. He kind of ended my conversation, trying to pick them up a little bit. This is a great leader. And so they went off with a, Hey, yeah, we screwed up, but Hey, the squadron commander's not pissed off at us. Let's, let's get better tomorrow. Right. I wouldn't doubt some of them talked that night and figured things out. And we came back the next day and we just nailed it. I mean, it was, it was like, Day and night, the two performances, and we got a really good grade on the evaluation. So, uh, uh, again, you got to be very careful when you criticize in public. It's not a yeah. not a standard thing you can do. So, so that debrief, or I've heard them called murder boards, or whatever that kind of a post post action meeting, um, you know, where you were getting on your team it seemed like you were still getting on them, not as a like, hey, Joe, you really screwed the pooch. It was like, hey, this is what we did as a team. We didn't do our potential moving up. And then you had like a second person come in to like pump up the team before, um, you know, like the therapists always say, like if you're diving into a trauma, always leave on a positive note, kind of the same piece. So I guess my, I want to dig into that a little bit more. Like how, can you talk a little bit more about how you were getting on the team, you know, in, in that debrief. And then do you think you could have also been that pump up person or do you think it really helped to have a superior come in after the fact and be the cheerleader um, in terms of uh, morale? Two, two good questions there. Um, the first one, um, you're exactly right. I think you nailed it. I was really talking more about the performance of the team, not trying to point out any individuals. And, and in the Air Force, for flyers, right, pilots, 
<clears throat> at the end of every mission, they get together and they pull the rank off. And it doesn't matter if you're sitting with a wing commander. If he was flying that plane and he made a mistake, hey, Bill, you know, or sir, <laughs> I don't give a call the wing commander. <laughs> but hey, sir, I saw this. I'm not understanding why you did that versus what we had trained on is this. And 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 you would talk through it. Yeah. You know, pilots always with the hands, right? <laughs> for, for your readers, I'm, I got hands. <laughs> I got hands moving through the screen here. Um, and I tried to bring it that way of, hey, guys, we were supposed to deliver this at this time or do priority we were supposed to be doing this. What happened that we we're doing, getting that done? You know, and, and it slowed down our time on everything because now everybody else is waiting. So theory of constraints. Um, so you, I think you're spot on, right? I was really trying to talk more about the team performance than any individuals. Um, so that was perfect. Could I have been a positive guy? Yes. As long as I was thinking about it that way prior, I would have to have the transition from, mm-hmm. it was kind of like the, the, the compliment sandwich, right? Hey, yes. Yeah. Here's some really good stuff, but here's where we messed up. Here's some really good stuff. Com- you know, put compliments on each end. Yeah. I wasn't thinking that way. And so I, I, I really needed him to come in. And I think it was, it was so much more important than that meld because they could have walked out saying, we've let down everybody in the chain of command. And they could have really felt bad. But they knew at that point that the squadron commander, he trusted them. He knew their performance. He knew their capabilities. He lifted them up. So it was, it was, I think it was needed for the next day to be so good for them to really feel good about themselves. They needed somebody more than just me. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> well, you've got good stories with good threads to pull. So, um, okay, so I'm going to switch switch tactics and ask you a fresh question now, okay. um, because you are currently working with lots of folks, um, military and otherwise, helping them transition. I'm sure you see lots of examples of leadership, the good, bad, and the ugly, right? So in the past, I don't know, five years, what have you seen as kind of the uh, number one trait of a the number one toxic trait. Let's start with the negative first because I'm a problem solver too, right? Like what's the number one toxic trait you see in leadership that tends to recur or happen a lot that you would love if you if you had a magic wand you could fix. You're, you're talking regarding career transition? Uh, well no, just because I'm sure in that job you just see lots of different leaders in different situations. Um, so just what you've seen over the past few years since you've transitioned yourself out of military, what are some of the okay. leadership fa- flail- or failures that you see uh, that if you had a magic wand, you would want to fix? Like, what's your top one? A, one of the biggest things I think we have a problem with right now, and we've had it for decades in the military. I remember back in 88, 89, 90, when I was in Germany, we were already facing this because it was the, it was the, the, the down when we were moving people out and downsizing, downsizing is where I was looking for, downsizing the military. We had, up till that point, we had been doing, trying to do more with more. Mm -hmm. We were no longer growing. So it was more with the same. And then all of a sudden we were downsizing. It was more with less. Leadership kept saying, we're going to do the same with less. But the way commanders, not just wing commanders, commanders at all level get promoted is you, find problems and you solve the problems. You're, you're always looking for things or trying to do things. Um, so they're always coming up with new ideas. <clears throat> and 
And you're not going to get away from that in some respects. But I think the leaders have to be cognizant of the stress they're putting on the organization. The number one thing I see from a lot of military coming out is burnout. Mm-hmm. Our, our nonprofit military transition roundtable, we're trying to do <clears throat> webinars every month. And last week, we just did one. We haven't released it yet on burnout. And are we really using the term burnout correctly? What's the, what's the symptoms? How do you stay out of it? How do you get out of it? Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff. But I think the key is because of this, the high deployment rate, because of a low manning, the people that are at home, the, the people deployed are already working, you know, 16 more days, six, seven days a week. But we're creating that same thing at home when they're trying to be at home with their family, do their master's degrees, whatever, all the other requirements, volunteer. Um, and we are burning them out. They're running so fast, they, they don't get to stop. Um, and I think that is a real bad leadership piece that is going to come back and probably already has in some ways. Think back to, um, I'm going to highlight the uh, missile Air Force missile career fields when they take their certification tests. At some point, they started taking their cell phones into the test. These are top secret tests. And people were texting each other the answers. How did we lose the integrity of the system? How did that become part of the culture? How did cell phones get into that room? It it just, everything fell apart. And it was Mm -hmm. just to the point where if they missed one question, they felt that they were going to not, they were not going to get promoted. They were not going to move forward. So they had to have a hundred percent. There was a no fit. Go back to that. No fail. Yeah. Um, and in reality, we learn better from the failures, even on a test, if we step back and look. So I think that is part of, it's those couple of things where I just mentioned are probably the bad traits that I saw. The other so, one, oh, go ahead. The other one coming out of the military is the number one challenge most military face in their transition. I don't know what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I started working with people and, and they kept always asking the question, I don't know what to put in my resume. I don't know what to put in my LinkedIn. I don't know what stories to tell. I said, well, what is it you want to do next? And I found out most people don't know. Yeah. In fact, you're asking me questions and I'm coming up with answers. And you're, you're, it's not demanding that you're pounding on the table, but through the process, you're kind of demanding an answer to get me to think inside of myself. And <clears throat> I'm finding a lot of military aren't willing to think inside of themselves. I was on LinkedIn yesterday with somebody and, uh, they basically said, I want to work for a great company, doing something that really matters, something bigger than myself, and really impact the bottom line. That's what I want to do. I said, okay, well, how do you like being a Starbucks barista? Because they do that every day. You know, they, they put a smile on somebody's face. If they're selling coffee, you know, the game, right? it could be a Walmart greeter. So, oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. I said, okay, then let's talk what you don't want to work so we can get to what you want to work. But I, I developed some processes to get people through that, to think into that just, you know, that big picture stuff, but really, what is it that matters? In the fifth grade, I knew I wanted to clean America's waters. Yeah, that was the why. Purpose, yeah, my why. You know, I love Simon Sinek's statement: um, "People don't buy what people don't buy what you do; they buy why you do it." Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The beginning that I was about cleaning up America's waters, <clears throat> and uh, and I, I, we've we've been doing what we're told for so long in the military that we don't really think about what we want to do, what really mm-hmm. energizes us. And that's where I'm really focused. And I'm taking that to 
the other company achieved new heights you mentioned, which is working with non-military, because 85% of the people are disengaged at work. Mm-hmm. It's a job, you know, it's it's a paycheck. Yeah. But they don't really know that. So 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 going back to the burnout piece, right? So that's something that's in the news now all the time with not just the military, which I can totally understand. In fact, if everybody else experienced what the military experiences in theater, they'd feel silly for being burnt out over the work that they're doing. But that kind of emotional overextension is what I think of when I think of burnout. Um, and you mentioned kind of this idea of leadership always wanting to boil the ocean, my words, but this idea of, you know, new new ideas so that I can solve problems and make the t- you know, get promoted and all of that. There's this constant kind of leveling up that it feels like it needs to be done. If so if we're talking now to the executives or other leaders on the listening to the podcast, what are some things that you've learned in your leadership journey that they could take back and say, okay, I'm going to help my people by managing myself as the leader so that my people are less likely to get burnt out. What are those, what are some of those things that leaders could do that would help keep their team from getting burnt out? One is get to know their people. I don't see that as much on the civilian side. In the military, we were required to kind of probe and ask and be involved in our people's lives. And I'm not saying that we have to do that probing and stuff, you know, crossing the line, but you can you can get to know your people on the civilian side without um, crossing that line. You can just mm-hmm. open up. I had a, a story when I was on that DOE project, right? We, uh, we got the opportunity to do a deliverable over to the government, meaning we failed, right? Yeah. And uh, we had like six weeks to redo it. And I needed the skills of this one guy. I'll just I'll just call him Jay, uh, initial Jay. And uh, <clears throat> but he was also really important on some other things. And I went and he had just had twins. And I went into his office one night and I just said, Hey, you know, we're at this situation here where we need you a little bit over here, but you're already doing these things here, and you've got a family at home with two two twins, and you got a one and a half year old. I'm I'm afraid we're going to burn you out. And of course, his immediate piece was, No, no, that's fine. I can take all this out. No problem. I, I can do this, right? Yeah. And I said, that's not the point, Jay. The point is there are other people on this team who can help you. And we can shed some of those pieces. And I need you to think through what things we can shed and how we can keep you balanced at home. And not, balance is not the right word, harmony, right? Some mm-hmm. type of, of, of saneness in this. So you're still getting home and spending time and helping your wife. And not, oh, she's not solving all the problems. And uh, he said the next day, he says, I went home and I was just mad as hell at you. He says, but my, I was talking to my wife and she goes, she's he's just caring about you. You know, he's going to make you successful, right? He already has. And he's going to continue that. He just cares about you. And he came back the next day and was, he really apologized. He said, I'm sorry for even thinking that. And I didn't say it. Um, but I walked in and I, I broached the subject. I expressed my concern about how this ends up. And asked for his participation in solving it. And he came back with ideas the next morning. I said, I think I can give this to this guy and this to this guy. Person, guy being generic, male, female. And uh, and he did. We did. And guess what? He was the guy who replaced me when I left. Uh, I think I said earlier, 
when a party when that engineer was over within six mm-hmm. months I'm gone. And he replaced me and he got promoted twice in about two years. Once to uh, lead associate, once to senior associate, where I was. And great, great individual, great capabilities. But that's just a story of getting to know your people and thinking into what's happening versus versus just walking in and say, hey, Jay, I need you to pick up these tasks, you know, report to so-and-so tomorrow morning. And then I never broke the rest of the Sunday. Yeah, that's a great. It could have broke him into a nervous breakdown, family problems, and everything would have failed. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. So you bring that brings up another uh, interesting phenomenon that I've seen where this kind of toxicity, you know, he was originally mad at you mm-hmm. because he was he had that kind of toxic expectation that he, he's just going to take on more and more and more. And that's how you get ahead and you show strength and competence. So this toxicity is seen as strength and the collaborative kind of people centric leader is seen with anger or as a weakness how how do you see that shifting any and how would you like how can we shift it even more or faster or do you think it needs to shift maybe that's just me no it definitely needs to shift um i'm i'm fearful we're moving in the wrong direction it's Mm -hmm. it's more of that than less of that Mm -hmm. as we as we put more and more so i'm just going to use the military piece as we put more and more programs on the on the shoulders of commanders and say, and we used to say, that's a commander's program. That's a command. Well, pretty soon there were so many commanders programs, the commanders were breaking. You know, you were there for a year and a half, two years max, and you you were burnt out at the end of that instead of it really being the joy. Um, so many meetings, so many tasks, so many programs, so much responsibility. And, uh, and at some point we need some help with those pieces. And I think the same thing. So the, the, the piece there has become they become so focused in on the programs and the meetings and everything they don't get out and meet their people mm-hmm. there's the third time i i took squadron command um and we were down at colorado springs doing our orientation because every ma- every major command wants you to to know how they do things and who the points of contact are at the headquarters and the finance guy would come in the services guy would come, the lawyer would, so we got to know what their focus was, which was great. Um, and the the facilitator for the day, the mentor for the day was a, a colonel, group commander. I was a lieutenant colonel. And he says, I'm going to challenge you guys. He said, 50% of you will never get out of your office and get to meet your people. He says, I just know it. Mm-hmm. So you're going to sit here and tell me you're going to, but you won't. So I need you to really make a commitment to yourself, not just to me, but to yourself. Don't lie to me. You know, Don't lie to me because you'd just be lying. Don't lie to yourself. You need to make a commitment of how you're going to do that. How are you going to get out of your office? And uh, and I did make the commitment to myself. And I did, you know, put things in working with the secretary of how to schedule time out. And there was times where I was sitting in the office and I had this huge stack of paperwork. And I'm like, I can do that tonight. I'm. I just walked out. I walked out of the office. I'm. I'm going driving around the base. I stopped in at shops. I, I just. Stopped in at job sites and just got my face out there. But I learned more about my people in those situations than I ever did reading paperwork or talking to their bosses. Mm-hmm. And I had a good reputation. <laughs> at least just some other stories I got to be careful of. But uh, back to your point, though, is if we don't give bosses the time, leaders, leaders the time to meet their people, 
without that, because what I ended up doing, when you say yes to one thing, you say no to another. I said yes to meeting my people. I said no to spending family time that night. Mm-hmm. That's a bad choice. Trade-off, yeah. Trade That bad trade-off. Um, so we need to get to the point where the day is manageable <clears throat> within the time constraints, within the, the products. And maybe that's, uh, commanders need another deputy. When I was a group commander, I had two deputies and I, I didn't, I, I walked in and gave them certain responsibilities and they pushed back on me. They said, oh, you know, I, I don't know how to do that. Well, heck, I don't know how to do it either. Let's figure it out together. Right. But t- together as a team, we're going to help each other, but you need to take some of this off my shoulder because they need to see me out there. Not just you, the two deputies were giving out because the, my previous guy replaced, he took all the paperwork yeah. out of And he was literally, um, his only time off was after church on Sunday. It was, it was, oh, it was on Sunday. He went straight back to the office. Was like, That's not going to be me. Yeah. <laughs> so I want you to go back to that story where you said, oh, I have a great, I have a great, I had a great reputation. And then you laughed and you edited yourself. Okay. If you can sanitize it enough, I want to hear that story. Okay, well, it's not nothing to be sanitized on. <laughs> so, uh, so it was my third command up in Great Falls, Montana, Melstrom Air Force Base. And the first Friday night, about four o'clock, I got this phone call from a irate spouse. And she literally had a flooded basement in her base housing and Tootsie Rolls, right? You know, human excrement is floating in her basement around your kids' toys. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and it's like, and she's been complaining since eight o'clock that morning, and nobody was doing anything, and she was fed up. And I said, "The buck stops here," <clears throat> and I said, "I'm going to be there in five minutes, and I'm going to be bringing all kinds of people." And I, I got out there at one point. My boss, the guy who hired me, the colonel, comes out, and I'm standing there with a phone in each ear, and talking to to the to the lodging guys at this point, saying they're not going to live in the house tonight. He's like, "Well, sir, we don't have it." I said, "They're not living in the house tonight." They're, they're, I need to put them in lodging. We'll figure out the pay later. You know, let's get, do you have a room? Yes, we have a room, but, 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 but. I said, I don't hear, hear the butts, right? We're going to move. And I said, my, my guys, like, we need somebody out here who can, who can help us track back what the problem is. I'm sure we can do that Monday. No, we're going to do that tonight, you know? And, and they ended up finding a, a blocked sewage line. In the backyard, and I was, unfortunately, my guys ended up working the weekend, and I was out there checking up on them, talking to them, getting to know them. I don't think there five days, right? Well, the second Friday, it happens again. Almost another, oh same result, different cause. And the third, the fourth Friday, it happened again. So I became the guy who was trying to fix problems with the infrastructure to the point where one time we were, I got word that a uh, Air Force Security Force tech sergeant was, the, the housing office was just really mad at it because um trying to think what it was anyway the bottom line we went over the house and we went in the basement and there was mold growing up the ceiling up the, up the walls you know because it was uh, below the ground and i was like what's going on here so i had my guys out and we're trying to figure out well i said we're moving these guys out you know we're not going to try to work this around them we're moving them out and then you have clear you know, role to fix it and then we found out uh there was one guy who was a lieutenant colonel um, who they put in a new brand new washing machine, a brand new refrigerator, but the refrigerator was so big, the washer machine door could only open to like 25, 30 degrees. So people couldn't get in and use the dishwasher. Like, <laughs> people live with this problem. 
So uh, I became the guy who was going to fix all the, if I found out about a problem, I wanted him fixed. Mm-hmm. You know, people weren't going to live in that kind of problem. And uh, one time, one of my chiefs came out and said, sir, we, we feel like, you know, you're kind of towing to all these other commanders and uh, and trying to play favorites. I said, didn't I fix a tech sergeant problem? Didn't I fix a staff sergeant? Didn't I fix you know, a lieutenant's problem? He said, ah, yeah, sir, actually you did. I said, okay. So am I only focusing on the senior ranks? I said, those just happen to be the problems I find. Yeah. More problems are out there, Chief, <laughs> letting me know about that need to be fixed because let's go fix them. Let's be the hero. Let's not delay it and people get mad at CEs. Let's fix the problem so people are elated at CE, civil engineering. And I got them, <laughs> got them on my uh, on my team and we started doing that. And uh, the wing commander started hearing about it. He said, I, didn't, I wasn't asking for permission. I just want to fix things. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's why it was a longer story. But it became fun to fix people's problems and put a smile on their face. Yeah, but there's a but there was there's a deeper thing there in terms of first you had to think about these people as human beings and not just cogs in a wheel, right? It, it the human element came first, and under getting to know them as people came first. That's great. that is a great point because. It goes back to that previous thing, right? If you're so busy mm-hmm. about them and a number and a phone call and a complaint, then you're not going to... Or EBITDA, how much they mean to your bottom line, right? Okay. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, one last question for you in terms of, like, the bottom line, what would you say your leadership value statement is? Like, what's your kind of tagline around leadership and what it what it means or what it should be for you? Of treating people as people wanting to do the right thing and how can I help them be successful doing the right thing? Yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. And I think when you, when you relate that to the military transition and probably transition overall, even for non-military is they've never thought before about what they want to do. I use the example of you pick up a newspaper, you look at the want ads and say, can I do that job or do I want to do that job? Yeah. I remember back when I was getting out of college in 1982, my buddy, who was the best man at my wedding, he says, man, look at all these engineer jobs in there. You are, you're going to have. Well, when I went through them, 95% of them I didn't want to do. I wouldn't even yeah. call them for them, didn't have an interest in doing that, whatever. It was this small group. Even when I transitioned out of the service in 2009, I went to a big conference where I interviewed a lot of companies, and I was very targeted. And people say, you're missing a great opportunity. You could be doing construction over here. And then that's it. But I don't want to do construction. I don't want to, I don't want, I want to do this. Yeah. And it was a handful of companies. And people said, you're missing out. I said, no, I'm going to do what I really love to do because I know that will light me up and energize me. Yeah. I think we, people are so not used to thinking inside themselves that they, they're uncomfortable with asking that question of themselves. There are other people that, and too many people are settling for something less, and it impacts them physically, mentally, spiritually, relationship-wise. And we're only here for 70, 80 years, tops, right? Somewhere in there. Why not enjoy every possible day and be your best? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's, that hits both of my companies right now. When, I, when I'm posting on social media almost every day, that's usually what I'm talking about. So in that vein, Tell us what's next for you. If somebody's listening and wants to have a Don session of their own, how do they reach out and 
connect with you? Yeah, so we uh two parts to that. What's next for me? Um, three years ago, the week that everything shut down with COVID, we launched our nonprofit. We had saw about three months prior to that that military felt alone in the transition process. They had been working with a team for however many years, you know, four years to 30 years. Mm -hmm. They were successful with the team, but all of a sudden when they hit transition, you felt like you were by yourself. You went to these classes, you got tons of information, fire hose. Then you had to go figure it out. I know I did in 09. Everybody I talked to felt that way. <clears throat> so we, Military Transition Roundtable is about the roundtable. It's a mastermind where you bring eight to 10 people together and you work through the transition process together leveraging their knowledge and experience, right? Each of us have different knowledge and experience aspects that we can use to help each other. Or we can use the brain. The book Think and Grow Rich says, whenever two people come together, it creates a third mind, the mm -hmm. master. And that mind goes better than even the sum of the parts, right? So so we use that. <clears throat> what I'm, We've been really successful. We've had 91 graduates of the program in three years, alumni. we got 57 in the program now. We're working with another 25, working on them into the six cohorts that we have. And uh, so our big focus right now there is fundraising. So if there's anybody who's interested in donating or know of other people who care about the military, that they want to see them successful, can connect us. Uh, the, our website, militarytransitionroundtable.com. Military transitionroundtable.com. There's a page on there for donations. <clears throat> That's really where we're at uh, to try to keep that sustainable. What I'm doing, I've, I saw them, as we said, 85% of the people are disengaged at work. I'm transitioning my for-profit to focus in on that non-military group, the disengaged at work. And right now you can go to my site, achievenewheights.com. It doesn't yet talk about that. I'm still in the process of transitioning, but it gives a connection to me to be able to talk. Uh, I would tell you the best way to do it is get on LinkedIn for either of those and send me a note, uh, Don, middle initial L, Gleason, because there's like 65 Don <laughs> L. Gleason. Well, we'll put a link in the description with your LinkedIn, if that's what you yeah. want. Don L. Gleason. And let's <laughs> a conversation and I've got a calendar link and we can set up an appointment. And I just love to talk to people and figure yeah. out where they're at and how I can help them. Sometimes it's connecting with people. Sometimes it's bringing them into our program, whatever it might be. Um, but it's helping them along that journey. But too often they don't see their own problem and they need that external. That's why coaches and mentors are so important. All right. Well, anything else that you want to share with the listeners? So I want to challenge again the listener to think back to your questions and how it applies to them. That last one, what is your style? Wow. That was, <laughs> that was a tough one. It um, is, yeah. But then listen to my stories and think about the stories they have because that's the experience. So when I think when I work with people about what they want to do next. I take them back through that journey of what they've done and did they enjoy it? Did they not enjoy it? What was the best? What was the worst? Because there's there are golden nuggets in that experience that tells them emotionally, if they pay attention to it, what they really want to do. Mm -hmm. But we're always so stuck on being successful in our neighbor's eyes that we don't even know, right? Having the high salary, having the high the toys, having all that's not success. Success is really enjoying what you want to do. And making a huge impact. John Maxwell says, you know, once you've tasted significance, which is helping others, then success for you doesn't matter anymore. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's so true. And that's where I'm at in life is, is adding significance to others. And I think if, if more people would focus that way, we'd all be pretty better. Well, thank you, Don. I've had so much fun talking with you and hearing more about your stories today. And I really appreciate you just spending time with us and sharing your truth. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, just, just as much on this side. It was so much fun, you know, uh, just getting to know you and, that, and the questions and, and getting to know myself a little bit deeper. So uh, <laughs> the opportunity to be on your podcast and uh, I wish you the best in this and uh, and I look forward to sharing it so we can uh, continue to increase your audience because they need to hear more of what's coming. Fabulous. Thanks for listening to the Evolving Executive Podcast, found everywhere podcasts are available. You can check out all of the links and resources mentioned in the episode and catch up on all of the podcast episodes at evolvingexecutivepodcast.com.